Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. As hope for global growth continues to stall, an increasing number of people are beginning to question its role in the social imagination. Degrowth forces a dramatic shift on our social consciousness. The ideas of innovation and growth predominate in our modern economies, and notions that embrace stepping into a degrowth paradigm seem to counter the very basics of our good business practices. How can we depart from these ingrained notions? In this second episode of our two-part coverage of the 2014 Degrowth Conference in Germany, we dig deeper into these questions and look for answers. We first speak with Professor for Critical Management and Post-Growth Researcher André Reichel from Karl Schichel International University in Germany, who reflects on recent large-scale media attention on the idea of degrowth. As the Extra Environmentalist podcast returns from its short hiatus, we dive into articles by Paul Krugman in the New York Times from a few months ago about action on climate change and the role of energy in the economy. Is dealing with climate change cheap and easy? Is a conversation on degrowth just a distraction that impairs meaningful progress on climate change? Is the German energy transition, the Energiewende, something that is actually in line with ideals of degrowth. We will discuss all those questions with our first guest, Andre. Then we'll speak with three of the organizers of the Degrowth 2014 conference about the state of wider conversations on growth in Germany. And last of all, we'll hear from our blog editor, Luisa, and many of the other attendees who share their perspectives on the evolving suite of ideas that constitute the degrowth movement. You are listening to The Extra Environmentalist. I'm Seth. And I'm Justin, and this is episode number 've been told that we cannot pursue strong economic growth and combat climate change at the same time. But what if that's a false choice? The investments needed to shift to a low-carbon economy are almost the same as those investments will make anyway. Today's technological advances are already creating opportunities for employment and economic growth while reducing climate risks. These are the findings of the new Climate Economy Report from a team of world-class economic experts, heads of government and business leaders. We don't have to choose. We can have a safe climate and a prosperous future. Find out more at www.newclimateeconomy.report. 
This report argues for a new model where economic growth and climate action are mutually reinforcing, and it shows how we can build it. The report focuses on change in three key areas, cities, land use, and energy, says Felipe Calderon. The former president of Mexico chairs the Global Commission on the Economy and Climate that produced the report. We estimate that these three sectors will require investments of around $90 trillion during the next 15 years. And we are not suggesting that we must decouple economic growth from energy demand. What we are saying is that we must decouple economic growth from carbon emissions. Better growth and better climate at the same time in policies that are successful, in cities that are doing it right. So this is about taking what we've learned over the last few years and taking it to global scale. If we want to restrict global climate change to about two degrees or so, we need emissions reductions that will be in the area of eight to 10% per year. I mean, this is really the scientific fact. You cannot debate it. But if we have reductions that are eight to 10% a year for a prolonged period of time, no economist can tell you how we can sustain GDP growth while having these reductions. Even Nicholas Stern, and he is the preeminent climate change economist, has noted that annual reductions that go far beyond 1% per year are incompatible with economic growth. At least when we look to economic reality and our experiences with emission reductions in the past, we need a huge decarbonization of the world economy and a dramatic scaling up of renewable energy, which is going to take many, many years and many decades to come. A simple supply-side solution, as Paul Krugman and others advocate, cannot solve the issue of climate change. We just finished spending some time at the degrowth movement, which happened mm -hmm. in Leipzig, Germany, this 2014. And there are a lot of people there who had some interesting ideas about what degrowth is, what it could be, the actual term mm -hmm. that that is degrowth. And when you start throwing around these words like reduction of costs and the reduction of resources and reduction of consuming, people start to get a little bit worried because it goes against so much of what they know is to be normal. Could you talk a little bit about your feelings mm. from the degrowth conference? What, what came out of it for you? For me, I think the main result was that almost 3,000 people came to Leipzig and were discussing issues of degrowth and a society that is not fixed on economic growth anymore. I mean, I was at the first conference in Paris six years ago, and we were about 150 people and mainly researchers. And now in Leipzig, there was so many normal people, uh, and most of them very deeply concerned with in-transition practices, you know, with transition towns initiatives, with community-supported agricultures, with repair initiatives, alternative regional currencies, and so forth. So this conference, to me at least, marked sort of the beginning of degrowth as a movement in Germany, and it is now clearly visible. And somehow, you know, all this movement and all the great momentum that is now within this movement, I think will sooner or later lead to some kind of political reaction in a way. And so this is really interesting for me because I've spent a lot of time in the research community and now seeing that so many people, normal people are involved is really amazing. 
We're talking here in the middle of October, and it's been a little over a month since the Degrowth Conference happened. I was wondering if you could share your perspectives on any conversations that have been happening in the German media or kind of thoughts that have been developing in Germany after this conference. I mean, there was a huge curiosity in a way, you know, about the idea of degrowth and what kind of people this would be that are interested in the idea of degrowth. So there was kind of a coverage even in, in larger media like the Frankfurt Allgemeine Zeitung or uh, at der Spiegel. But still, I think it's still sort of a, a strange idea for some, you know, to think about a society that is not fixed on growth. And I think the greatest task for people affiliated with the movement is to explain what it actually means, you know. And so this is to distinguish between what does a post-growth economy mean what is a recession and what is degrowth? And what came out of the discussion is really that degrowth is a planned transition to socially just and ecologically sustainable post-growth economy. So as Peter Victor from Canada says, it is post-growth by design, not by disaster. And I think this is something that needs to be communicated much more clearer than it has been in the past. You mentioned before that you think that based on the actions and the people showing up, that political action is right around the corner. It's something that's happened. You can see it. You can taste it. Are these ideas ones that can make their way into normal political world? I mean, I know you work with the Green Party. Mm. Does the Green Party accept these kind of ideas? Will they embrace them? There is a growing discussion in the German Green Party now around the notion of if we should side with the people who are advocating green growth or if we should, you know, have a more differentiated stance on these issues. And up until the degrowth conference, a lot of Greens were kind of in the green growth camp. But after Leipzig, there is really discussion going on. And there's an interesting discussion paper by two Greens, Dieter Janicek and Gerhard Schick, who are opposing, the one is from the left wing of the Green Party, the one is more from the right wing of the Green Party. But both have wrote a, a paper to be a bit more growth agnostic. You know, we don't know if growth will happen. We don't know if green growth will happen. So we should make our social security systems, our tax system, a bit more growth independent, which is not the case up until now. So there is a discussion starting in the Green Party, not probably going full steam ahead into the degrowth movement, but be a bit more skeptical about growth and even also about green growth. So this is happening with the Greens. In other parties, I don't see it that visible. Although a couple of years back, even Wolfgang Schäuble, who is now the finance minister for the Christian Democrats, said that probably growth for the sake of growth is not a good idea. The really interesting feature about the German economy and thinking about a post-growth future is that it's so heavily dependent on exports. It's a major exporting economy. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on how the economy would change in kind of a post-growth future in moving away from that export dependence. Because even in Germany, if the economy wasn't pursuing growth domestically, there would presumably, to support all of the large automobile industry, there would need to be growth possibly elsewhere in the world. I mean, this is this is a problem. However, if you look at German exports, the vast majority of German exports is going into the common market, is going into Europe, to the European Union, to Eastern Europe. So it's not so much that we're exporting 
all around the globe. I mean, Germany is doing this, but if you look at really the absolute numbers, the main focus of exports is within the European Union or the wider European area. So maybe it's not such a big problem if we switch to a more domestic production, because for us, Europe is really a domestic economy. You know, you have to probably look at it, at it like that. However, if we look at the wider picture, post-growth means that some aspects of you know the global supply chains that we're used to, which we are so dependent on and which are so vulnerable to, for example, resource shocks, maybe these have to be downscaled in a post-growth economy. We're probably looking for more, maybe not domestic, but regionally oriented economic activities in a post-growth economy. I like this term that you threw out there before, growth independence. It has like a nice ring to it. I was wondering if you could explore that a little bit more. What does an economy look like that's transitioning into growth independence? You just mentioned a little bit of regional activity mm. there. What does what mm. an overall economy that's moving away from growth look like? What we need is clearly more regionally oriented economic cycles from first production to manufacturing and consumption and recycle. Right now, if you look at the supply chain structures, for example, of companies, you see that they are really dispersed across the globe. And I think in a post-growth economy, these supply chains will move closer to where the solution is provided, for example, where energy is created or where food is created or where mobility is created. So I think this will be sort of a, a restructuring of supply chains towards a more regional level. I'm not sure if it will be done you know, just by itself. I think there are good reasons for companies to look for more regional kind of value creation. A regional supply chain is much less vulnerable to resource shocks or political upheavals. But at the same time, I think we also need some policy instruments to enable these more regionalized or even localized economic cycles to exist. But this would be a clear path to re-embed our chains of production, our change of supply to a more, let's use a term from Habermas, a more life world oriented context. Now, you brought up this distinction between green growth and post-growth, and this is a, a really important debate in my view because there's these reports that come out, like the New Climate, New Economy report, which was getting a lot of media attention, and it's saying that we can grow our economies better if we start tackling climate change. And not only do we not have to move away from growth, but we can grow even better by doing it. And I hear climate activists here in Canada, and they say things like, if you bring up the idea of something that's going to hurt economic growth, it's never even going to get on the political agenda. So you're going to hijack the idea of making progress on climate change. How do you respond to kind of conversations like that and, and this idea that we can grow our economies better if we're dealing with climate change? If we only look at climate change, which is just one environmental issue we have to tackle in the 21st century, if we just look at climate change, we will have to make emissions reductions from 8 to 10% a year. And this is unprecedented in history. You know, we never, we don't know how to do it if we keep everything else growing, even with green growth. If we, for example, look at our progress that we made with carbon intensity, so how much carbon we need to spend for getting out one unit of GDP, I mean, this has been improving for roughly about 1.5% per year. So we're at talking about an eightfold increase almost that we would need to deliver on a technological front. And this is the problem with the entire green growth strategy. It is almost exclusively focusing on technological progress. We don't know what kind of progresses will be. 
you know, we don't have any kind of developments showing that we will have technology available and we don't need the technology in 50 years. You know, we probably have a, a carbon-free energy system in 50 years or so from now on, but we don't need it in 50 years. You know, we need these progresses right now, tomorrow, you know, better starting today. So this is one weakness of the green growth strategy. The second weakness of a green growth strategy is it is almost totally blind to the rebound effect. And the rebound effect means, and you probably know that, that with any efficiency increase, we will also induce more growth. Because if you become more efficient with, for example, using energy or resources, the price of resources and energy goes down. Which normally, if you know, we don't impose a tax on efficiency increase or whatever, will result in more consumption. So this is the second blind spot of a green growth strategy. If you say green growth, you also have to say efficiency taxation. Otherwise, it will not work. And the third blind spot of the green growth strategy is it relies on growth. And what I always found a bit puzzling also with the Better Growth and Better Climate report is that it still has this blind faith in growth itself that we will actually have continuous growth in the future, even continuous green growth. But if you look to reality and even to the very conservative growth estimates by the OECD or the IMF, which are certainly no degrowth advocates, point into a direction of much, much less growth in the future, not only in the OECD countries, but globally than we're used to. So we have to get our head around that we're probably green growth or not, witnessing the end of the growth economy as we know it. And this is something that neither better growth, better climate can solve or any advocate for green growth can solve. Everyone is pointing towards technology to save us, right? And that mm. everyone says, oh, don't worry, when the time comes, capitalism will develop a strategy and mm. a technology that will save us and make sure that everything will be fine. And this you know, brings up the larger picture of how humans always seem to wait the last minute to make these changes, these needed changes. Mm. And for this issue and for many issues along these lines, it's, it's just a little bit too late. And I'm wondering how you go about teaching these ideas to students in your classrooms who are the future mm. generations who are going to have to deal with the effects of these miscalculations by generations that are, are in control right now. What do you go about telling young people about how to deal with these mm. things? First, you have to be very honest, you know, and show the problem in all its seriousness, because otherwise, you know, you cannot say everything will be fine with technology. You really have to show the data. You have to show past developments and certain behavior modes that we were experiencing, certain latencies in the political system and how long these things usually take. Normally, I say, look, you have a great opportunity because you will be after probably an 120, 30 years or so after the time of the great inventions, the first generation for many generations that can really build a new economy, an economy we today don't know how it will actually work, but you will be the ones, you will be the pioneers who are able to explore these new forms of doing economic action, of doing business, of providing solution for society. You will be the pioneers, the new entrepreneurs of the post-growth age. Not me, you know, I'm just, I'm too old for that. I'm, I'm 20 years too old for that, you know, but you will be the pioneers. And there's an interesting new world ahead. You don't have to follow the old trajectories anymore, you know, because they will break down anyway in a few years. So you have the great opportunity to build something completely new where there is no precedent for 
and normally, you know, this encourages young people to think anew, you know, to create a new world. This is what young people are normally doing and want to do, you know. So this is how I try to bring them closer to the idea of post-growth and that the old world is inevitably dying. When I try to describe the idea of degrowth to a lot of engineering types or people who are very pro-entrepreneur oriented, they think that the idea of a steady state economy or degrowing toward a steady state economy would mean an end to the creative spirit of humanity because engineers and people studying business really like this idea of generating new ideas and growing a business from a startup to a medium size to a large company or creating a new innovation. And would this necessarily be the case in a post-growth economy? How would you kind of take this idea of business in into the post-growth world? The, the most important distinction is if the aggregate is not growing or even probably shrinking, this does not mean that parts of this aggregate cannot grow, for example. You know, even in a post-growth economy, even in an economy that is slowly contracting, uh, there will be certain parts certain businesses that will grow rapidly at the expense of others, for example. I mean, this is just a very extreme form of creative destruction, you know, of the great innovation cycle of Joseph Schumpeter. So it's not so much that it is the end of innovation. It will just mean probably a new dawn of innovation. We need new types of innovation and we will see growing businesses even in a post-growth economy. And probably what we really have to think if we talk about contraction, we talk about, and we have to be Precise about it. We talk about real GDP. No, we talk about the monetary aspects of the economy. Not just the physical, we also talk about the monetary aspect. But what we also have to take in mind is that currently there is a huge, well, you can say shadow economy. It's not illegal. It's just not represented in the numbers. A huge economy on top of our money economy that is not calculated, but it is almost as big as, as our accounted for economy. And in this type of economy, I think we will see much more innovation happening in the future. So there is business opportunity to make good money, but not just money. That's why I like the term that the colleagues at the Post-Growth Institute use, that business will be not for profit, which means that they are not non-profit, but that there is more to business than just profit. And I think this will be a very fruitful area and a very fertile ground for post-growth entrepreneurs. And as I said, most likely we will see more competition in some aspects and we will see more innovation, just not the same kind of innovation. So that means we won't see an iPhone 7, 8, 9 or 10. Maybe we will see it, but it will not be regarded an innovation anymore in the future. So I'm thinking, what will the iPhone look like then? It will be it'll be like a slower iPhone or it will be like one that you can plant in the ground and it will grow like a a tree or something. Yeah, it'll be made uh, what other seed in- case or something. <laughs> <laughs> what other industries are mm. going to see this this technology entrepreneurship? Exp- mm. I mean, I guess all of them. But what are some other examples of how this will affect mm. industry innovation? If if a young person would come to me and ask, okay, what kind of industry should I prepare myself for? I would say the first thing would be anything that is somehow connected to the idea of a circular economy, because this will be a major backbone of any post-growth economy. And why is that so? If you look to natural ecosystems, reductionist activities, you know, so getting stuff out of the world, are always a bit 
more than productive activities. And the reason is very simple because otherwise you know, stuff would just pile up. And so the same thing I think will account for a, an economy that is not growing or even contracting to a steady state. Everything that is connected to keep the material within the economic use phase, this will be definitely a growth segment. You know, that in order to keep products with a longer lifespan or within perfectly closed material loops, these products will have to be designed differently and they will be manufactured differently and they will be uh, sold and bought differently. So this is really, I would say, a growing field in the future. And the second, if you can call it field, would be anything that includes collaboration, collaborative production, collaborative consumption, collaborative repair and reuse of products. And this, I think, will be really a growth segment within the post-growth economy. Maybe the best term would be a collaborative circular economy. The idea that Paul Krugman has been working on with this idea that there are no limits to growth and calling out people who think that there is a kind of limit to growth. His most recent article was about why fuel savings can be easy, and he explains how cargo ships can slow down and use less fuel, but more cargo ships are required to ship the same amount of goods. And so, you know, is Paul Krugman with a Nobel Prize really the best spokesperson for the anti-limits to growth side? Because, you know, I can understand wanting to put together an argument against the idea of limits to growth, but I feel like that argument is pretty easy to, to shoot down. We're talking before the show, we should just have some people stringing the whole ocean with just, you know, passing goods across. We're just, you know, mm-hmm. little stations of people handing things back and forth. <laughs> For example, yeah. uh, when I was looking at the cargo ship argument, I was wondering... Where does Paul Krugman get all the resources and energy needed for building these additional cargo ships, including the maintenance infrastructure? I mean, do they materialize out of thin air? Where do they come from? I mean, I really admire and respect Paul Krugman for a lot of things, especially his willingness to be a political, intellectual and academic in the political debate. This is very important. But you know, when you read through this article and he says energy is nothing special, you really say, okay, probably you are just a very classical economist. You know, for example, just the issue of energy, which he says, okay, this is nothing special. It is just a commodity like all else. Energy only comes with energy. And the notation for this is energy return and energy invested. So you need usable energy invested in order to get usable energy. And the more energy we have to spend to get it, the less energy we can spend on other things, for example, on cargo ships. So on ignoring energy accounting, Paul Krugman is just repeating the same mistakes that economists has been repeating for the last 140 years or so. And the world has dramatically changed in the last 140 years. Yeah, it's actually disconcerting to me because it seems to indicate that people who are trying to put together an argument against the idea of limits to growth don't really understand the argument or the kind of physics that are involved either. Yeah. Paul Krugman in in his article says that energy is just an input like any other input. How can he make a statement like like that and and help to have any kind of sway? If I read through the article, I mean, this is also a political debate. And I mean, he's probably concerned that some of the Koch brothers, you know, all these right-wing climate deniers now suddenly appear to side with the growth skeptics, you know. And so he probably, you know, looked for a big hammer, you know, just to smash on on these arguments and, and probably didn't think so much through what he was actually saying here, you know. So he's probably not pointing to all the ecologists in the room, but 
towards the climate skeptic. So he's fighting a fight in an arena which is totally not where this fight is being fought. And I think this is the problem with the article and also with the argument, because otherwise Krugman cannot understand the issue of energy and the dramatic changes that we see with the energy return on energy invested. I mean, uh, Richard Heinberg did great work on this matter as regards oil. And if you look at these numbers, you know, this is not monetary accounting, but energy accounting. And maybe this is the problem, that an economist is trained to translate everything into money. And money is, you know, we can have as, as much money as we like. You know, this is never really a fundamental problem for the economy. But energy is different. And I think economists are just not trained to understand that not anything can be translated into monetary terms. So we wanted to wrap up in just a few minutes, but since we're talking about energy, we wanted to ask you about the German energy transition strategy that's underway because the economy is undergoing this really massive build-out of renewable energy generation capacity. Is that a post-growth strategy? Could they help post-growth or are they in opposition? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, we definitely need, uh, regardless post-growth or not, a 100% renewable energy system for various reasons. I mean, first, if it's there, it you know it will run carbon-free, and most importantly, it will have zero variable costs. The sun doesn't bill you, or the wind doesn't bill you, so that's a good thing in itself. What is interesting about the Energiewende in Germany, our energy transition, is that it didn't start two, three, four, or five years ago. It really started. 20 years ago, you know, when with the deregulation of the energy market, which is kind of a twist of irony, you know, in, in history, when the first renewable energy providers were formed. And these first renewable energy providers, after the deregulation of the market, they were bottom-up providers. They were local utilities together with campaigners from anti-nuclear initiatives, buying their own local electricity grid and investing in renewable energy and also selling renewable energy. So this was really an interesting start for the Energiewende and nobody noticed it, that we had local energy, green energy, energy in citizens' hands. And this, I think, can be really perceived as the post-growth strategy, strengthening local economic cycles, putting really power to the people in more than just one meaning of the word. As the Energiewende is done right now, I'm a bit worried, I must say, because now the attention is shifting away from these bottom-up and decentralized initiatives towards the big utilities. And the big utilities had a huge problem in Germany because up until now, only 5% of the electricity generated out from renewables is provided by the big utilities. The other 95% are totally different actors, you know, local utilities, citizens' initiatives, energy cooperatives, and even investment funds. So I fear a bit that we're now shifting towards the large-scale infrastructure solutions. So we'll have to see how the Energiewende will progress in the future. Yeah, so I think that as we're moving forward into this in this world where we're coming up to many limits to growth in many different industries and we see the writing on the wall, I'm wondering how we can expect our political leaders to respond to it, our economic leaders to respond to it. Are we going to go all the way to the end and just fall off a cliff or is there going to be a slow kind of tapering effect going on as we hit these final limits here? What can we expect in the next you know, 15 years? I mean, it's difficult to predict what will happen, but I'm totally on the same side as Paul Gilding when he is writing in his wonderful book, The Great Disruption, that humanity is 
probably slow but not stupid. So I think before we hit the wall, we will hit the brakes dramatically. I, I don't think that it will be a slow process. I think we will just struggle on for a while and try you know, to come out of the financial crisis or out of recession and tackle climate change with all the old instruments that are all focused on growth. But when we realize that it will not work, and probably are five to ten years away from this moment when we will finally realize it, then we probably will change very dramatically. At the same time, what is happening, and probably going back to my Leipzig experience with the Degrowth Conference, there's so much local activism already underway, even local new kinds of businesses, you know, not-for-profit businesses or not just-for-profit businesses, energy cooperatives, community-supported agricultures, new kind of repair and reuse uh, initiatives and all these things. So there is a the new economy, the new post-growth economy is already growing underneath the skin of the old growth economy, like in a larvae kind of a phase right now. So it probably doesn't look so nice. The old looks not good anymore because it's already dying. And the new one is probably also not in a nice shape. But there will be this moment, you know, when the old shell will be just falling off. And I think this would be a very dramatic moment. And this will be happening in a very short time period. So it will not be a slow transition to this new economy, it will be probably a great disruption, as Paul Gilding says. To close out, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about your work and some of the research questions that you're working on now and how people can find your work. You can go to andreireichel.de. Uh, just one word, and look up my website. And there you find, because I'm also try to be sort of a public scientist and blog about my work, what I'm mainly concerned with is really how to arrive at new measures for business success, you know, measures that are looking into the environmental uh, value added, into the social value added of businesses, and how to derive certain strategies for businesses in the post-growth economy. This is really a main issue in my research. And on the other hand, I'm really looking into the wider implications, probably from a cultural or, or even spiritual perspective, what a post-growth world will actually mean for us culturally, spiritually, individually. And this may sound not overly scientific, but I think these are the true important questions, the questions about the good life. And this question was the question that started economic thinking almost 3,000 years ago. My name is Vivian Simas. For me, degrowth includes a totally new way of seeing how we relate to the planet, how we relate to each other, how we relate to ourselves. A shift in, in hardware, you could call it maybe, in the outside. So we new economic patterns such as a change in the way we um, extract resources or that we find circles again decentralize um, energy systems or anything and then on the other side it's the 
software change, that's our mindset, like a change in, yeah, in the way we witness ourselves and that um, we are actually connected to nature and um, in relationship always and then that we can't go get out of this and to be get aware of this again and with this be aware that with carrying on with the system we are in right now we will also destroy ourselves somehow that also crisis in the outside shows crisis in the inside for and that it's deeply connected so my name is Fred Lukes L-U-K-S and I work at the Vienna University for Economics and Business. I work in sustainability and I think that degrowth is one of the crucial topics in the current sustainability discourse and a very exciting one too. We had a session this afternoon where we found out that there are probably 70 or 700 definitions. So my definition would be something like discussing an economy and a society which are not dependent on further expansion of the GDP. I mean degrowth obviously means shrinking also but yeah I think the whole, the whole idea is about becoming less dependent from economic growth. Carla Duvenhorst. I've been organizing a small youth conference last year and giving a workshop on degrowth. I'm always not quite sure whether the English degrowth is the same as the German Postwachstum. Just by the name it's about society after changing the, the paradigm of growth or after the time of getting rid of this paradigm of growth and trying to get into a new way of living. For me it's less about the economy but more about the societal complete change of how we're living, things we're concerning of and yeah, more the connectedness to everything else and not only the focus on growth, 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 growth. <laughs> and, yeah. Those are voices of Degrowth 2014 conference attendees recorded by Louisa Clarence Smith, our fabulous blog editor, and you are listening to episode number 83 of The Extra Environmentalist. Next up, we speak with three members of the Degrowth Conference organizing team, Christopher, Jonas, and Malou, about what it was like to put such an ambitious conversation on degrowth together, and about the state of the conversation regarding post-growth versus degrowth in Germany. First, we hear from Christopher. I think it has worked really well that degrowth as a disturbing word has created a big stir and has, has livened up the debate on post-growth as is the normal debate in Germany. It's always post-growth, not degrowth. And degrowth is a lot more stirring because you don't you don't really get it. Why aren't they saying degrowth? Why aren't they saying shrinkage? And do they really want it to shrink? Or what do they want to shrink? And so it creates a whole debate. And it's been very well possible to show that the international degrowth debate on one side is far more critical of capitalism than the German post-growth debate. And we've had lots of speakers here that have shown the tradition of the degrowth debate and have shown the whole argumentation of why capital as a system that makes more money out of a certain amount of money tends to also expand physically and so can't be very compatible with the degrowth idea. And how degrowth is also about getting growth out of our minds. And this has been like a combination in this whole conference on the one hand showing the systemic side of capitalism and our political system and how growth is 
part of that and on the other side showing the individual side and how we have the logics of growth in ourselves and in our minds and the huge amount of work that we have to do to get rid of that and um, people have been saying oh this has been very individualist people are always doing the psychological workshops and they need to talk about their personal situation but I think it's actually a good link to do both to look at the individual and to care about the individual and at the same time look at the system and to have a look at how can we strategically change it to provide a good life for everybody and that to wrap it up was shown in the organization of the conference itself because we try to work as a group and and at the same time take care of every individual and to use this conference as an example for an economy which works different than the economy that we have right now which is not profit orientated and not based on competition and is sustainable yeah. so you used two terms that I wanted to kind of just get a little bit more clarification on you used the word post-growth, which is different than I think than degrowth, and you also use the good life. Now this is a term we've, we've talked about a lot, and I, th I hear it a lot at this conference. I wonder if you can kind of differentiate those terms for me and maybe go into a little bit more detail about what the difference between post-growth and degrowth are. And Jonas, as you answer this question, if you could update our listeners on where the German post-growth debate is, because a lot of them are from North America and different countries across Europe, so they're probably not familiar with the German context. Well, maybe I can say something about the last part, especially about Leipzig, because I have the feeling that in Leipzig there's a big movement of people that want to get their housing back, that want to establish some sort of alternative living space. And I feel in a very, very small area, this is already happening in Germany, especially in the East, which is very individualistic in a, in a sense of sharing together. Because what happens here is that there are a lot of people coming together to buy houses, to buy um, land, to build gardens, to do all those small little things. However, that happens in an umbrella kind of organizational way because they all are in contact, they all have networks, they all share together their experiences, their work, what they do. So this is happening a lot here in Leipzig and also, I guess, in, in the whole of Eastern Germany at the moment. And the more general lines of the post-growth debate. In Germany, the post-growth debate has been a lot on the personal situation and reducing your personal carbon footprint or your ecological footprint and feeling quite bad about your lifestyle, which is important because lifestyles do have to change but it's been a bit under-theoretical on how the whole economic and political system work. And I think that in the last weeks we've seen a certain shift. There's been this debate in a very conservative newspaper between a very left-wing thinker and a very conservative one, and both agreed on that capitalism, according to Marx, they actually uh, cited Marx, both of them, the conservative one who's actually in the conservative ruling party, CDU, yeah. They both cited Marx and said uh, Marx was right. Capitalism doesn't provide for a good life for all and is the actual driver behind growth. And the conservative thinker then added that the left-wing thinker had forgotten that mental infrastructures, what I was saying earlier, that how we think and the growth paradigm inside our heads is also important and that we have to tackle that as well. 
And that seems to be, to me, the degrowth element that has entered into the post-growth debate. I really like that talk that I went to that talked about how growth has entered into our imagination. That was one of the, probably one of the best talks I went to here. What do people take away from that talk? Because it feels to me that there's so much that people do in their normal lives that is about growth, right? Pretty much everything they do enters into that growth paradigm. The talk was about uh, how growth enters into our, our consciousness, into our thinking process, in pretty much every aspect of our lives. What are the takeaways that people have from this kind of conversation? Where, where do they go from here? Yeah, I'd, I'd say there's a very strong strand in the German debate at the moment that's saying that uh, what we need is positive stories. And uh, we need examples of different ways of living and different ways of doing and different ways of running the economy. So there's this foundation which is called Future 2, which is like a time form in German, which is what we will have done. So I will have changed my socks tonight because they smell. <laughs> and um, the whole idea is to look at the economy from that point of view, from the future looking back at what we're doing now. And what they do is they collect these positive stories and they say that's the main thing to change the imaginary of the people. And that's what I was saying earlier as well, that it's so important to also nurture the small projects and to, to have your community garden, to have the different housing projects so that we can see that this kind of living is possible. And that's what we try to do with this conference as well, to show, look, you can organize an event with three and a half thousand people, with all the press coming for five days, with 600 contributors, and you can do it in a grassroots way. You don't have to take one single majority decision to do that. You can then have the food vegan and organic, and all the people love the food, and nobody's like, oh, there's no meat. <laughs> um, it's all possible. And that might be a good way to change the imaginaries. And re reflecting on that, last night we were streaming a session in two rooms because there were so many people coming to it that we had to open up the live stream into another room so that people could go in there. And it was with Harold Veltzer of the Future Zwei Institute, or foundation, I, I believe it is, or the program. And he was kind of having a bit of a discussion between whether we should kind of try to change the political system as it is now and get these ideas into the mainstream political discussion versus having these kind of grassroots initiatives and changing that personal imagination. I was wondering if you could both kind of reflect on, on that tension when it comes up at these degrowth conferences. Well, I think both is necessary. I mean, of course, you have to have a debate in the mainstream about those things. And I think that is happening at the moment, especially in Germany. But for me personally, it's much more fun to stay in counterculture or small projects and do the kind of street work style stuff. Yeah. But I think really both are necessary and will happen or is happening. Yeah, I sometimes wonder whether it's like a strategy of ours to just be arbitrary and not have to decide. But I think actually it's a step away from being dogmatic about one way of changing society. It doesn't work like that. There's lots of different strategies and they can be complementary. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, okay. I'm, I'm Malo Vidal. I'm part of the organizing team. Yeah, I, I want to come back on the theme of decolonizing the imaginary. Yeah, I'm just like the last months studying Latouche's work about decolonizing the imaginary. Yeah, so that's kind of the basis. Yeah, I want to build up on, on what Christopher said. I think we need like 
new ways of thinking. But there we have to be radical in our perspective and in our like critique of roots of our culture. And it is like what has been said about economy which is strong in our head. It's not only in our head, it's in all our body, it's in our emotions, in our ways of of seeing perspective of what needs we have and what kind of strategies we have to to get satisfaction. Like in all that, the growth theme, the, the idea of growth is totally in, in ourselves. And there we have to, on a radical basis, ask ourselves, what are, we, what are we doing there? Where does this come from? What other ways or other strategies of satisfaction are possible? For me, it is a lot about accepting that there is not enough right now for a lot of people. We have way too much here and we have to completely change the perspective on what mean to be poor. Like in African cultures, in a lot of, of regions, poor is not in a materialistic way. You're poor when you're not in social relationships and communities. Then you can suffer of food or of clothes or everything. When you are in a community, through the community there is stability. There is, And so poor is only if you're alone, mm -hmm. not if you don't have a lot of, of material stuff. And I think this is one spot where we really have to go deep in it to see about what are we afraid to change our way of, of finding ways of satisfaction and to, to change the perspective. And, and I'll just say that's a very subversive perspective and one that you wouldn't necessarily see on the front page of a mainstream newspaper to think in that way. And I think it really is a crucial part of developing this degrowth idea and actually using it to degrow our economies and respond to limits to growth. And so there's quite a bit of media here at this conference. And I was wondering, since you were media coordinators, how was the media responding? Were there articles coming out? Were you seeing articles in German press about this degrowth conference and what were they saying? Yeah, we've been counting over 20 articles in major national newspapers and I think there's more coming and they've been overwhelmingly nice to us, so maybe that's a sign of worry, I don't know. Um, there's been two major newspapers have been actually covering the conference and reporting every day from the debates and putting in the degrowth debate and every day a different text and the TV and radio as well. I think it's just a very strong moment in Germany for this debate. So media is a really important way of changing the narrative, which is kind of what you were talking about. And changing the narrative is a really important part in, like you're saying, with showing good examples of these kind of ideas in motion. How, how do you think media shapes people's attention to these stories? And how do you think that media plays a role in getting to change that narrative? I think that's one of the most interesting questions that is happening at the moment in Germany we get a lot of bad reputation for media from all the people basically the people they call themselves the people and they say no the media are not doing their job so the question is well what is the job of the media and what should they do differently then so uh, rather strange people yeah ra rather strange people are demanding with that but the interesting point is that they have a really huge, huge influence online. They are very strong in using the alternative media, those people that say the media is not doing their job. And I think that is shaping the debate of how media should work in a very negative way. Because like you, the extra environmentalists, you're doing a very interesting, very good job on reporting those things. But 
I think they're just overlooked in this debate. How can we use new media and new media outlets in supporting the ideas or this narrative that Malua talked about before? In general, I think it's very difficult because media is going on for now a hundred years, really professionalized, global work process. I mean, it is an industry. Um, they have the workflow, they have the way they work. And now we have a chance since the last 20, 30 years to really tap into that by using the internet, by using alternative ways of producing media outlets. And yeah, I think it is very important to take over this debate how especially alternative media should work. I see it in the US, there's a lot of big conservative alternative media outlets where I always wonder how do they manage to tap into this field that, that should be left-wing, that should be alternative, that should be radical. And, and they're really dominating, I think, in a way, this usage of this alternative media. Yeah. In wrapping up, I know you're all very tired from having a long and very impressive conference that it ran so well. And so if each of you could kind of leave us with thoughts about things that stood out for you, moments that resonated with you during the conference, things that you didn't know if they would work that actually worked, or how you see this idea of degrowth moving forward in Leipzig and in your own lives. Well, one thing for me as part of the organizing team, which was amazing to, to just like look at it, to make the experience, was the whole process of our group organizing this and trying, for me more an experiment than anything else, to do it as a uh, the yeah. basic democracy and consent process and to see as well like in the whole two years how this group tried and struggled but find their way and to see them here as a group who are just like a lot of volunteers who put so much work in it and so much love in it and we have had so much positive feedbacks that it was so well organized and for me it's a sign of what consent or basic democratic process can be and can do even in in event management and now we go out of there tired but I think very empowered we need empowerment this is maybe what we need most that people are able to to stand up and to do what they feel to do and for me mostly it is a part of empowerment and of learning to create rooms of change and now here we had 2,000 people every day or nearly eating it was going so well. Have you ever seen uh, so much people getting uh, food in such a small time? Like if everybody have to pay, it's like, yeah, you need hours. Like just details like that. For me, it was amazing to see that and to see what is possible. For me, that was, I think, the most impressive moment or what stays right now in my mind and goes with my emotions. I visited one workshop in the conference and that was by friends of mine from Spain and one of them is part of a political party named Bildu, which is, has recently been legalized because in the ba he's from the Basque country and uh, they've had a very long ongoing conflict. And this party has always had slogans like sustainability, grassroots democracy and stuff like that. And now they're in power. And he gave this talk on how now he has to actually implement those policies and how very complicated it is within the economic system that we have right now, within the complications of capitalism. And, and how great it is that people can get into the position of, of actually being able to do something. He sketched out a whole plan of what they're going to do in their community in the next five years, and I uh, wish him a lot of luck. And for me, 
I want to go back to the small things. Uh, I just met a woman who has a small little garden and probably they won't own it till the end of the year and so I would love to organize something with her together to get some money, some funding so she can stay in the community garden. And I thought that's the small things again. The big things are important too, but I love the small things as well. Yeah, and of course now we will party. I think that's something important to take away as well. Yeah, absolutely. I was wondering what your reaction was as an organizing team when you saw how many people registered for the conference. How did you react to that? Well, actually, it, for me, it began at the moment how much response we got on the call for papers and call for participation. Like, I don't know the exact numbers, but in my... So there it was like, okay, if 600 people want to do something, then there will be a lot of people coming who want to see what is happening. For me, it was easy. I was not so much part of the logistic team, so I was like, yeah, yeah, a lot of people are amazing, great, you know? <laughs> I think for us, it, it was emotionally another thing. And then when we started here the first days, I think we were all like, oh God, what will happen? Like now 3,000 people are arriving in maybe 12 hours, maybe three days, we don't really know. But I, I was very happy. For a lot of us, the vision was to, to create bridges between different discourses and between different social movements. I think it, on that, this is a, a very big idea or vision, but maybe we, we did a little step on that way. And for this goal, it was very important that a lot of people came here. So for me, yeah, I was amazed. And I, I would be very interested how much people would have come if it would stay open, like that everybody can come. And I think it would have been... I don't know. <laughs> yeah, too much for sure. But just, you know, to get a number, to get an idea how many people are in right now in this mood of, okay, we need degrowth. One more inspiring moment that I want to share is there was this time when I was looking for people to stream the conference and stuff, and then I got this email from this guy in, in Canada, and he was like, yeah, I'd like to do some streaming with my team, yeah, and we're the extra environmentalists and, and we can do everything and it's no problem at all and we're like the solution to all your problems and, and I was like, what? And, uh, and I thought, that it's probably not true but I'll go with it anyway and it's turned out to be true and you've got these really cool t-shirts and I'd love to have one. <laughs> I wish we had some honesty. Do you have any? Yeah, well, thanks for making it possible for us to be here and to opening up the conference so that we could record some great video. And so it was great to meet all of you. An absolute pleasure. I'm Noah Schäppel. Uh, I'm from Augsburg, from south southern Germany, and I define degrowth as the idea that you don't have to maximize the materialistic output of an economy in order to achieve a better quality of life. The degrowth idea is that we want to measure our success of the economy not in terms of money, but in terms of the quality of life and also the common good. I'm Leonidas Martin, member of Medio Collective. And Medio is a collective based in Barcelona. We are all cultural workers, but we didn't find our space in neoliberalism. Some of the members are filmmakers, some others are designers, some others are photographers. If the grow is a growing movement, that's a very funny yeah, a question. I love that. For me, the degrowth has uh, this idea of upside down the world, because actually we really need to think about the world we have on a totally different way, as neoliberalism is 
offering to think about it. That means to go out of of um, competition, right? That's how we live out there. It's like we have to compete. Wherever you are located in society, either if you are an academic or if you work wherever, you have to compete for the resources, right? Countries compete between them for the resources, everybody. So, I mean, the growth is actually one of these theories that offers another way of dealing with the world and everything, not based on competition, but on cooperation and sharing. Yeah, I'm a Christian from Copenhagen, Christian with a K. I've heard like different definitions at this conference. People say it's like more like a sustainable development, like a slow growth that is more green and with renewable energy and all this. But to me, degrowth is actually a contracting economy. So I see a growth economy is like where you grow everything, where you grow the resource use, energy use and the GDP. And I see a degrowth as the reverse, like that most things should uh, be going down. Most people have just been brought up that growth is natural and that's the way the economy functions and there's no alternative and there's no other way of even thinking about it. So I think most people, they, yeah, they can see maybe we have some problems now, but most people assume it's just a small bump on the road and we're going to continue growth. Yeah, it was funny, like even my, I, when I was growing up, I was talking with my parents about like that it was not sustainable, that we couldn't keep growing the populations and there were going to be wars in the future or like immigration issues and stuff. and. You know, there's a limit to the resources and everything, and they kind of agreed. But now, when I bring it up, they get get like really aggressive. Maybe it's a sign of the times that more and more people I talk to, they feel kind of trapped in this kind of economy, in this situation, and they're all kind of desperately trying to find a way to kind of get out of the system somehow. And they're like really telling me, yeah, they're just fed up with their work and they just want to do something new, and they try some new place, and they travel some other place. And they're always trying to find some kind of happiness and they can't find it. And I, f I find myself doing pretty much the same thing. And we kind of feel lost in this, uh, in this environment. And it was actually one of the reasons I came to this conference was to kind of find people in a similar situation or some talks that would kind of give me some kind of uh, roadmap what to do, but it's not easy. Yeah, it's really, really encouraging. Like even, uh, even uh, last night, in the evening, uh, yeah, I was having a beer with some uh, people here and uh, yeah, I met this guy who really, like, we were really on the same page and he really understood many of uh, the same concepts and we were both, like, really excited and that's how it is, like, when you have these kind of subjects where a lot of people, they don't understand you and when you meet people who really understand you and even some really kind of taboo subjects, like, maybe, like, collapse of civilization and stuff like that, and they kind of don't laugh at you, but they kind of understand you and give you different inputs, then, yeah, you feel kind of validated and, yeah, that you're not crazy or, yeah. Originally, I used to be kind of very lone wolf attitude that I would try to find the solutions by myself and do things on my own and, yeah, I would just, like, run away from society and build my own little shelter or, like, this kind of survivalist kind of attitude. And I've just kind of changed over the years and realized that the most important thing is community and finding like-minded people and kind of getting together and making some kind of plan together. And you cannot do things on your own. And even and if you need to change the society, you need to get momentum with the different organizations. The whole issue here is actually kind of happiness and we kind of feel trapped and lost and and depressed and yeah, in this kind of environment or this kind of economy most of the time. 
and then that's like companionship and understanding and all these kind of uh, other values that are not just resolved by earning more money or earning money and material wealth. Even before 2007, even before the crisis, maybe even since uh, 2000, when I first kind of encountered all these kind of issues, really. But I've kind of felt paralyzed. I felt like, okay, I have to finish my studies. Then I was like, okay, I need to work. I need to save some money up. I need to figure out what to do. Okay, maybe instead of being like uh, exploited, like as a kind of uh, worker bee in the, this whole matrix, maybe I should uh, instead like have my own company and instead, instead kind of exploit others. But obviously that's a really stupid idea. So, but most people, they don't see any alternative. And I see a lot of people, for example, they're studying like business administration or something, because they feel like, or their parents tell them, listen, you shouldn't make the same mistakes, like just be a worker bee. Maybe you should be a business administrator and have other people working for you. So it's like, you can be a slave or a slave owner. And I think that's really crazy. So this conference actually illustrated there are many other ways. They're like cooperatives and, and communities and you can just like be sustainable you don't maybe need to enter this whole uh, capitalist economy you were just hearing more voices from the 2014 degrowth conference next up we hear from luisa clarence smith our chief blog editor and frederico de maria of research and degrowth I feel really lucky that I got the chance to kind of go to some of the smaller sessions because they were more about some practical steps like what small groups have already done to move towards more of a kind of degrowth society rather than just kind of academics discussing their different broader ideas which of course is really important but perhaps for someone like me can't take that much from it in my own everyday life. So one of my favourite sessions was with these three Italian guys who are all based in Barcelona and they're all from Research and Degrowth, which is actually one of the big institutes which I think organised the whole conference. Two of them did a really big speech at the beginning of the event and seemed like these really big important guys that's releasing this book. It's Federico de Maria and Giacomo Dalisa. But in a small session with them, it turns out they're actually part of a cooperative based south of Barcelona and it's an organic olive oil farm where they get like 200 people together to help on the farm, whether it's like homeless people or kind of academics who want to come down just for the weekend to help out on the farm. And then they just distribute the olive oil to each person depending on how much work they've done. So there's no money involved or almost nothing. They, they maybe sell a, a small amount of it to, and use that money to, to pay for fuel when they're harvesting the olives. But effectively they try and just create an economy which is outside of the capitalist market economy. And by doing that, part of their time, you can see they're really making a difference. And they're not just going and living on a commune, which is kind of, you kind of think, oh, what can I actually take from this to kind of contribute to a new degrowth world? Going and living on a commune is quite a radical decision. <laughs> so <laughs> it seems like they've got like kind of the best of both worlds. They work at university and they have this kind of alternative lifestyle at the weekend. And Luisa, you actually had a chance to speak with Federico de Maria about what they're doing on their olive oil farm. So we'll jump into that interview now. My name is uh, Federico De Maria. Uh, I'm a member of Research and Degrowth, a collective which works on degrowth-related activities in uh, Barcelona. And one of the projects we have is an example, a cooperative of participative organic olive farming close to Barcelona. The idea a little bit is that uh, despite the fact we live in the city and we have different activity, most of us are researchers, but we're also activists, 
we were interested to do something with primary production too. And we wanted to experiment whether it was possible to do agriculture farming without living in the countryside necessarily. So a few years back, we got uh, four hectares of land. It's 500 uh, olive trees. And uh, we cultivate them around the year. And especially during the harvest, which is more than half of the total amount of work during the year, we get a lot of people coming and joining us and helping us with the harvest. So basically what we have is we have a very peculiar accounting system for which we count uh, the number of work days. So then uh, this means that the, re the redistribution of the harvest is done on the basis of the total amount of hours that people have put into the, into the field. So this means that for the owners of the field there is no rent, but that all the harvest or the benefits, we could say, go to the participants. But of course the benefits are not only the olive oil, which uh, it's very good, um, but it is also the enjoyments, the experience of experimenting farming, staying in the countryside. It's a wonderful place where we camp, we have no water and electricity, but we can enjoy what is called in the degrowth debate conviviality. In the degrowth debate, one of the big issues is work, and we want to redefine work. And um, we often talk of the reduction of the working hours in the paid sector, so when you work for a wage. And we think we can, you can dedicate your time to other activities, for instance to care or stay with your friends or your family. But you can also engage in primary production, having a small garden and growing your vegetables or doing your own bread or in this case making your own olive oil. So I think it's a, it's a way of diversifying your activities and experiences you can have in life and also understand better which are the problematics of organic agriculture, which is often a challenge, it's not, uh, it's not easy. So I think it teaches us a lot and um, it really helps us to envision what the degrowth future could look like, also from the practice and from the ground, touching the soil and being in nature. One of the reasons why I got involved into the, into the farm is because we work a lot on the computer. <laughs> we read a lot and we write a lot, or at least we try. So sometimes I needed some breaks. So I like the farm because there are seasonal work to do. So you cannot escape them, you have to go. So it's not like going on holidays, you can decide when you go, you want to go or not. But on the farm, if you need to start the pruning, then you will have to do. Or if you need to cut the grass, then you do to do it now. So that means that I have to stop my uh, work take a break, go in the field and relax while I'm also doing something else. So there is a part that is of course uh, has to do with relax, there is a part which has to do with sociality because I don't work alone but I work with more people. I can disconnect from the computer but sometimes from the discussion I have or enjoying the silence uh, of the field. Then I also get good ideas for my academic work. So some of my articles are based on ideas I got while farming. So, but I can also say that every time I go, the first day of work, I always think I want to become a full-time farmer. Then the third or the fourth or after five days of hard work in the field, I think, well, you know, I also like academia. So there must be a balance and we're all multitasking. Uh, we have just published a new book, which is called uh, Degrowth, a vocabulary for a new era. And one of the entries in the, in the section on the actions for degrowth is the cooperative. So you have uh, consumption cooperatives or you have production cooperatives. You have cooperatives working on the issue of credit. It can be an alternative currency. It can be so-called ethical banks. So managing the money in a different way. So not only this can be replicated elsewhere, but it's already been done. There are people doing it uh, professionally and there are some other people for which is not, it's only a hobby or part of uh, a different type of activities.
And I think it's growing. That's at least the, um, the experience we have in Spain now or in Southern European countries in general, like Greece and Italy. Also because people don't easily get anymore um, a job in the paid sector, in the market, because of high level of unemployment. I know lots of people that uh, are looking for other activities, which can be professional farming or which can be also what we could call part-time farming or hobby farming which is what we, we actually do. So in the participants we have in the cooperative, there are a number of people who come mainly to enjoy on the weekends and uh, work a bit, but there are people who try to live without money and so tries to satisfy their basic needs in other ways. So they come to help us with the harvest because they know they can get oil and that's part of what they consume during the year. It's not perfect, they don't get everything they need uh, without money, but they're experimenting that. I think the idea of experimenting is part of envisioning, it's part of imagining and building a radically different society and what we could call a degrowth society. Research in degrowth, <laughs> the collective to which I belong, has started these conferences. We had a uh, few of them, we started in Paris in 2008 and then in Barcelona 2010 and then Montreal and Venice in 2011 and today it's, it's Leipzig. So the idea why we initiated this conference is it was exactly for a different um, uh, range of actors to meet, activists, practitioners and scientists and um, exchange on their degrowth related activities, be it research or be it uh, grassroots alternatives or activism in general. So for us it has been very important uh, that the people would meet and also we could say that the loose international degrowth network already exists because of the conferences. And I would also say that there is one specificity of this conference, I think this is a cumulative process, so we are uh, doing by learning and learning by doing. So one of the things I think we have learned, and it's pretty clear here in Leipzig, it's that um, there are different types of formats and the local organizing committee has really worked a lot on that. <clears throat> and this means that um, each type of the participants can find the format where their uh, expectation can be accomplished. In the sense, if I am a farmer, I want to talk about farming. I don't want to talk about science and the scientific debate about agriculture. So this idea of having parallel sessions for scientific papers, but also practical workshops, and then spaces for music and other type of activities, this gives um, space to the diversity that is typical also in the growth. And I think this is a very important characteristic of these conferences in Leipzig. But I think there has been quite, quite a lot of attention, not only in Germany, but also internationally. There was an article in The Guardian already a few weeks back explicitly talking and discussing the growth and um, talking about the conference here. And two days back, so on the 2nd of September 2014, there was an article, another article on The Guardian on the limits to growth, the famous book from 1971. And they were showing results from a new uh, research from Australia um, where a group of scientists is arguing that in fact uh, the Meadows, the authors of that report, were actually right. And this can be demonstrated again and again today with updated data that we have. So I'm taking The Guardian because it's a very influential uh, international uh, newspaper. Uh, we could talk also about a lot of other media uh, websites and blogs and Twitter and all. But I think the word is spreading in general a lot more now on the growth than it was a few years back. We are still not too many. We are 3,000 people. We are lots of people, but we need more people. But sometimes people would say that the people in general, the population, uh, the majority of the population is not interested. This is not true. And the fact is that mainstream media is also silencing the dissensus in society. So I think if we give the opportunity to people to come out and express themselves, we will see that they are not so confident 
with the hegemonic and mainstream debate. So we have to challenge the hegemony and we have to offer alternatives and people will, will come. And we have seen it, in, in, for instance, in Spain, from where I live now. You could see, I could mention the Indignados movement, so the so-called Occupy movement uh, in English. We had assembly with 20, 30,000 people in the square, and that was amazing. We had huge demonstration. There's a new political party in Spain, which is called Podemos, left-wing uh, radical political party, which has taken almost 8% in the European election. So it means that if, if we are able to speak up and emerge uh, sometimes from the everyday chaos, uh, there are more people, I think, that are interested in these ideas and in changing their life because they want to be happier, they want to live well. I'm wondering what your takeaways were from, like a highlight, what was a highlight for you of the, the conference? And maybe one, one highlight and maybe one thing that you didn't find too attractive. A highlight would probably be just meeting people who are sort of really active in their societies and maybe are part of transition towns or local initiatives and thinking, yeah, actually, that's something I should do more in London. Something I always think, oh, I should be doing that. I kind of look around and then I just think, oh, it's not quite the right time for me. Or I've got all this other stuff going on and I'm really tired from work. So I think meeting people who do that, it's just been really inspiring. Probably another thing has been motivating myself to join a cooperative and realising how important cooperatives are and basically that we our purchasing power is so strong. And that's something all of us can do in our everyday lives. Think, where am I putting my money? What is this going to? And if I put it towards this and support this alternative economy, then I can actually make a difference that way. I'm really quite jealous that you were able to attend the sessions where they were actually talking about real things because a lot of the degrowth discourse that we were filming was lots of very elaborate descriptions of why capitalism needs to be abolished and neoliberalism needs to be taken down. And, you know, they're very cogent critiques, but ultimately you have to do things on the ground in order to make any of those ideas happen. And you were in a session on upcycling, so if you wanted to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that was um, very interesting. It was three women from an upcycling group in Berlin. And so two fashion designers who kind of were educated in the traditional way at art school, um, went then to work for design companies where they're just kind of copying patterns, not really being creative at all in the kind of mass market system. And then thought, actually, this is not sustainable. I don't want to be part of this they kind of realise all the waste that goes on and also were concerned about the sort of labour on the other side of the world. So they recognise this gap that a lot of the big textile factories, they have a lot of offcuts from their production and they realise actually maybe they could use some of those offcuts to make clothes and in that way kind of just disrupt the system. Admitting it's not a solution because obviously if we do degrow, then those big factories aren't going to have all that waste, which would be a good thing. And then their upcycling <laughs> initiative wouldn't exist anymore. But they sort of recognised as a transition process, it was a really good idea. But they do sell and they sell their shirts for a, a, a quite expensive. They're like more than hundred pounds each. So they were admitting that their their customers tend to be professionals in their thirties kind of creative professionals in Berlin. You can imagine there's the market there. It might be a bit more difficult to translate that elsewhere. But then there was another woman from a different initiative in Berlin who just gets local people to come in and learn new skills. So just learn about sewing their own clothes and altering them rather than buying new ones. So it was interesting to see how you can kind of survive really off the offcuts of all the waste which goes on as a transition initiative rather than as a kind of, kind of solution to the future. 
Yeah, you mentioned there was someone in the cafeteria here who was surviving simply off of uh, looking to find the food that wasn't being eaten and grabbing it. What is he calling that? Yeah, that's called table diving, (laughs) apparently. So I I know about dumpster diving, (laughs) which I've never actually done dumpster diving myself, but that's something I'm quite open to. I have all my flatmates in Edinburgh used to do that and used to bring back some amazing food, which had been untouched, but was just a bit out of date but was totally fine to eat so yeah this was a new concept for me so what happens is apparently with table diving is you just kind of hover around the area where people go and put their empty trays (laughs) and you can have a really good lunch apparently off just their leftovers so I think the young guy I spoke to he's he's German and he lives in Berlin I think he repairs bikes for a living and and he just didn't want to see all that waste, do something about it. I have to say I didn't join him. <laughs> it's, a, it's a shame you didn't get to join him. Yeah, that's. I admire him, but I think it, I need to try <laughs> go through a, some kind of a transition <laughs> before I reach that kind of scale of degrowth activism. Yeah, and there was also really amazing food out here already, so that was, was. That was a really yeah. nice alternative. So there was a lot of younger folks here at this conference. There's a lot of student people here under 30 years old, and they seem very passionate about these ideas. And being from that same generation under 30 years old, there's a lot of potential, it feels like, a lot of passion built up around the ideas of degrowth. Did you have a sense about the feelings behind why people are feeling this way, about why people have come to this event, about why people feel really interested in being here at degrowth? Yeah, I interviewed a few people just about why they were here and what they think degrowth is. And it was really interesting because everyone has quite different perspectives. It's such a broad term, so it really sort of attracts a lot of activists, but also just students who are just interested in new ideas who aren't quite happy with the status quo. So the difference between generations is something that is really interesting because we're all coming from different perspectives on what our lives want to be, different goals in our lives. Our parents had these ideas about what their lives wanted to be. And now people from our generation have a much different idea about what they want to be and what, what, they, what fulfills them as new adults in this world. Have you thought about that at all? Have you thought about what it is that separates our generation from maybe our parents' generation? I'd say it's amongst people I know my age, there's perhaps more of a sense that things aren't going to stay the same. And whereas for a lot of our parents' generations, they they'd start a job and they'd think, oh, they'd have the same job for the next sort of 50 years and never change. I think our generation's much more insecure in that you don't really know what the job market's going to be or, I mean, if you're really concerned about these issues, you think climate change might have a real impact on your life as well. So some people are quite pessimistic about that. Other people see it as an opportunity, so they're quite excited about, you know, that they can live their lives differently. And there are lots of different ways you can do that. Other people are kind of just a bit scared and worried, so it attracts both sides. But in London, it's interesting because our economy is growing, apparently. <laughs> so these ideas aren't really being discussed so much there. And even if I sort of talked to some of my friends about it, they wouldn't really get it, I don't think. I mean, I'll try my best when I get home. <laughs> so Boris Johnson is not coming out and saying, <laughs> I'm going to degrow my hair? I would love to see him say that. I think I might be able to trick him into saying that. <laughs> But he's cleverer than he looks. (laughs) What I wanted to jump into before we wrap up here is to just comment on the city of Leipzig and why it's so interesting. I think 
the great part for me has been the ability to be here a few days in advance and be in this shared house and cook with people and sit around and have conversations about what's going on. And it seems like Leipzig, Germany is a place where rents are quite low because of a large number of reasons. There used to be a lot of coal mines and industry here. And then basically through the kind of collapse of the Berlin Wall and changes in economic structures, not a lot was going on here for a long time. And now there's just a lot of apartments and places you can rent for like a hundred euros a month and so there's a lot of artists and foundations that are taking these properties and turning it into places where activists and subversive people can live for no rent where we are staying as a team with a fantastic host that was collaborating with the degrowth conference and and Anna said you know how can I help and they said well you can put people up and so they've been hosting us this week back behind their house they have a restaurant that has a goat named Heinz and people go and eat at the restaurant and Heinz will go around and say hello to them and if they're not looking he'll jump up on their plate and I don't think that's something that could have ever fly with the kinds of health requirements that go on in Canada so yeah any thoughts on like the general vibe of Leipzig and its ability to host a degrowth conference yeah Justin absolutely the people here seem very laid back and very mellow in a lot of ways I've really had a great time with our hosts and when I first walked in the door the gentleman that answered the door was very very much laid back and was like oh hey come on in would you like a drink would you like some water how was your trip and he proceeded to tell me about how he was spending his day which was mostly just relaxing and recovering from a very brutal school year that he had and that idea of just being so mellow and so nice and so accommodating just really came through a lot in the, with the people here that I've met and it's it's a really nice nice way to be and I think that a lot of towns could take a few lessons from some of the people that I've met here. I also really enjoy the public transit system, the trams that were, were fantastic and being a, a participant in one of the conferences here we were able to, to ride these trains and trams for free which was a fantastic benefit of being at this conference here in Leipzig. And I will add that in many degrowth discussions, the concept of free public transit is certainly an ideal. And so to be able to live that at the degrowth conference of just hopping on the tram and getting everywhere very easily helped to make the living degrowth aspect that much more real. Yeah, I spoke to some German people just a bit about Leipzig and apparently, because in East Germany, a lot of students didn't really want to come here because I think the West was seen as where all the good universities were. But the government kind of was really like, giving them money to actually come and study here. But now a lot of artists can't afford to live in Berlin anymore. So they're all coming here and it's attracting a lot of students. So they're sort of having growth in numbers at the moment. And it's interesting because they're also kind of bringing with them quite alternative lifestyles. So in that sense, it is a really interesting setting for the degrowth conference. Because like, like, can they grow and become a kind of a big city again? but with like sort of sustainable initiatives and transition initiatives.
It was great to hear from Luisa, a very much needed female voice on her shows. Shows way too much of a boys club. And so we were really happy to talk to her. And she has such a good radio voice, far better of a radio voice than I had, especially when I was first starting. So hopefully we'll be able to hear more from her in the coming months and years. One of the really incredible things about being at this conference was that there were so many extra environmentalist listeners there that we did not expect to meet. We were just going to different sessions and people would come up to us and say, oh, I've been listening to your show. You are the extra environmentalist. Great to meet you guys. And so we had an opportunity to actually sit down and talk to some of our listeners. It was fantastic speaking to our listeners. Like Justin said before, it was really, really amazing just being at the conference and having people that I'd never seen before come up to me and say, oh, you must be Seth and Justin from the extra environmentalist. Oh, I've listened to every one of your episodes, and that was such a thrill for me. I know Justin felt the same way. There were several times where I was wearing my Extra Environmentalist t-shirt around the conference, and people would come up to me and say, hey, are you the guys with the Extra Environmentalist? Where can I get one of those t-shirts? And I was like, well, you know, I am one of the Extra Environmentalists. And they're like, no way, you must be Seth, or you must be Justin. And I'm like, no, I'm Seth. And yeah, it was it was really fantastic. It was really hard to try to recap everything that was going on at a conference that was so huge, like this Degrowth 2014 conference really was. But I did want to hit on one point of contention that came up between some of the dialogue there. And I think where the degrowth movement always in the past had held these conferences and it would be a few hundred people who showed up and primarily academics. When you have a conference where so many people show up and so many different realms of thought who are trying to reimagine this way that we think about our economies, there's going to be more and more disagreements. I wanted to highlight one of those disagreements in the way that we think about the global north, global south dialogue on growth. And that was really highlighted in two of the speakers. One of them was from India, Sarita Naran. She was speaking to the conference from India via Skype. And Giorgios Kallis, who is leading Degrowth Thinker, who also has a book coming out, which will be the first major book in English for an English uh, reading audience that summarizes a lot of the dialogue that's going on in Spanish and French and Italian on these degrowth ideas. So we'll just listen to a minute clip from each of them. How do we meet the needs of all and yet stay within planetary boundaries? If we combine the issues of justice and equity with the imperative of sustainability, we can find the new answers. That is the opportunity. If you look at India, we are relatively poor, yet we are fast developing. How can we get it right? How can a country like India reinvent growth without pollution? How change our trajectory of development so that we can give well-being to millions of our people, energy to all, and yet not add to greenhouse gas emissions from coal burning. How can we have mobility to all and yet not add to local or global emissions? Is that at all possible? We know we need development. We cannot meet the fundamental needs of health care, of water, of energy, of very large numbers of people. So the world needs growth. The question is, how can we have that growth so that it is equitous, 
and so it is sustained we can do this if we reinvent we can do this if we deepen democracy to keep listening to people we can do this if we look for alternatives in technology and most importantly we can do this if we have the courage to think and be different in the world thank you very much my first uh, open question for research is like what surprised me a little bit and what generated the question to me is how does the growth travel or not travel to other geographical contexts or other cultures i didn't agree with sunita narain's uh, plenary discourse in the sense that i heard a lot of times the idea that the north should grow the rich should grow so that the poor grow uh, arturo escobar in his plenary in venice made the statement that he said precisely the wrong type of framing the question is this that the north should grow so that the south grow he said the north should grow so that the south can find different ways and different trajectories to buen vivir but the very idea of the growth from the beginning was precisely to decolonize our imaginary from growth so if if we keep reproducing it with the idea that there is some poverty that has to be tackled with growth we are reproducing the same mistake latus came developed the idea of the growth coming out of the whole uh, discourse around development in africa so it is really really important i think for us to find new languages to express what has been done to overcome poverty overcome destitution overcome marginalization but not use the, the discourse of uh, growth i heard in some sessions that the growth does not travel that does not sit well in latin america it does not sit well in greece either it does not sit at all well in the anglo-saxon world where people tell us it's an awful world doesn't sound well etc and does it sit well even in france where it was born if you talk to anyone outside of the french activists they will tell you no this world you cannot tell it to policy makers etc etc so it doesn't sit well but that's precisely the purpose of the growth not to sit well <laughs> so if it doesn't sit well in latin america try to make it sit well it's not the point to say it doesn't sit well in latin america so we should avoid the, the word the growth in this particular context that's the challenge how do we make this world be relevant finish here Yeah, so, so that was Georgios Kallis that you were just listening to, and he was saying that the idea of degrowth came out of looking at dialogue around development in Africa, that we shouldn't say that the you know Canada, the United States, Europe should degrow in order to allow space within planetary boundaries for Africa or India or China to grow, that we need to find different ways to a good life altogether. Now, what do you think about that, Seth? It feels a little bit when the rich people are telling the poor people that we need to put more money into rich companies and put more resources into the upper you know, 5% of the world so that we can trickle down some jobs to the lower classes to find those economic opportunities for people who are less you know, economically gifted as top 1%. And as we've seen over the past, you know, 20, 30 years, this trickle down effect doesn't seem to work. In a lot of ways, it's trying to mimic the same kind of living standards that those upper 1% enjoy. When in reality, the people who are trying to have those jobs are really never going to achieve that same kind of economic success. And to try to imagine a world where those same people are having the same kind of economic privilege as those people who are in that upper 1% who are having that immense amount of privilege is just wrong to think about in so many ways because it'll just never happen. And on that point, I think that 
what we're trying to do with our show and an increasing number of people are trying to do is to broadcast out to the world, out to the poor, that everyone inside these wealthy nations are not exactly happy with how our model of development has gone and not exactly happy in their lives. And it was really interesting to be at the International Society for Ecological Economics Conference in Iceland back in August presenting some of my academic work because I saw the kind of energy and resource endowment and the wealth of the people of Iceland. And when I spoke to the Icelandic people, a lot of them are just saddled under horrific amounts of mortgage debt. And it's really a shame that we have so much material wealth in our societies as a whole in the aggregate. If you look at everyone all together, added together, we have unbelievable material wealth, but it's horribly distributed. And just to scrape by, a lot of people have to work like crazy in order to make sure that they can pay rent or pay these unbelievably high mortgages just to get by. And so that's the kind of idea that degrowth is trying to counter. And I think it would be a shame if every other country in the world says, wow, I really want to be saddled under horrendous mortgage debt, because I think that that really is, we say that the North should degrow so that the global South can grow. And in a way, that's what's been happening in China and in Singapore and many countries that are you know, following this growth trajectory, they're just blowing massive housing bubbles. And if- How dare you criticize the American dream, Justin? <laughs> I have every right to be saddled under massive amounts of economic debt. And how dare you take away my right? Well, there are certainly some people celebrating these days now that gasoline is so cheap. And anyone who thinks that a temporary fall in the price of oil indicates that peak oil does not exist is the same kind of person who would say that just because there's snow outside my window, there's no such thing as global warming. However, while there is a temporary low range for gas prices. Some of our listeners have been using that consumer surplus available to them from those low gas prices to send some generous donations our way. And, you know, anytime you have some economic surplus, it's always a great idea to send it over to the extra environmentalist so that we can spread messages that you won't hear on your nightly news to the entire world. Some of those folks who have sent in some money are fabulous people like Linda from Canada who did not put in an address, but is from Canada, and so thank you for that generous donation. Also, Joseph from Missouri. Dave from Burnaby in British Columbia, so thank you, Dave. And Ian from across the pond in Australia. And with Seth's attempt at an Australian accent, all of our Australian listeners no doubt stopped listening forever. (laughs) Thank you so very much to our overseas listeners there. They are just so fantastic. And many of the listeners who donated, donated $30 or more and will be receiving t-shirts and we're actually running low on the stock of t-shirts. So early in 2015, we're going to put together a new shipment and get those out to all of you. So thanks for your patience. The Extra Environmentalist is a non-for-profit organization. So any dollars you send in, in our way or is easily able to be written off on your taxes. That's another added benefit to The Extra Environmentalist. Episodes of The Extra Environmentalist are free and available on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and the website. So just head over to extraenvironmentalist.com and download your fill. You can join the conversation on Facebook and on Twitter. Find us on all of your favorite social media and send us a email at podcast.extraenvironmentalist.com. We really do love voicemails, so if you get the chance to send us in a voicemail, we will play it on the show. 
And the number for that online voicemail box is 919-701-9872. We've been receiving so many incredible emails recently to our email address at podcast at extraenvironmentalist.com. And we just haven't been able to respond to them, to many of them yet. So we'll be getting to those soon. We greatly appreciate every single one of them. And to all of our listeners who are enjoying this episode in early October, we really appreciate your continued listening support. Hey, what's that, Seth? It sounds like someone's trying to interrupt this broadcast. It seems like North Korean hackers are taking over our station. Justin, quick! Good thing I took all those language lessons to learn North Korean dialects last week, so I'll be able to translate what they're saying. What what are they saying, Justin? They're saying that they don't want us to release the interview, and that if we do, everyone's earbuds will blow up. Exploding earbuds? Yeah, so we need to hold this episode for several months. I don't know, should we listen to them? Probably should listen to them, yeah. Yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to be responsible for exploding earbuds all over the country. Yeah, it does sound pretty scary. And they said something about Paul Krugman paying them to do this, so he really doesn't like criticism. No, I think I think it's probably best that we just wait on the episode release. How long do you think it'll take to for this to blow over? Probably a few months. We should probably wait until later in December to release this. Okay, that's that's just to be safe. But everyone will understand that we're. You know, doing this for everyone else's sake and not just, uh, you know, being lazy. Issue and so the junk bonds are part of the fracking industry. Forget the fact that the fracking industry itself is economically unviable. The banks themselves are insolvent. So, you know, you have an economically unviable industry collateralized and financed by insolvent institutions that are underwritten by an insolvent central bank that's run by corrupt uh, dictators. All right. Wow. That was a really good break. Um, I guess this episode's ready to go now. I think those North Korean hackers are busy with other stuff now, so they'll leave us alone. Thank God. Um, So thanks to all of our listeners who held in there while we didn't get this episode out. It's been a really fascinating and eventful year, and we are thinking about different ways to keep our podcast releases up, even while we were in the process of planning all of these really exciting video broadcasts that we've been doing. We definitely don't want our podcast release schedule to suffer but if you're thinking hey where are those extra environmentalist guys you can check us out on twitter at twitter.com slash x environmental we post updates on there and you can find us at youtube.com slash user slash x environmental and we're posting videos on there more and more we've got a few hundred subscribers on there but we like to see more and you can find fresh content on our youtube channel whenever You are not seeing anything up in the podcast feed, but do not worry. We are in the process of recording many new episodes and many new interviews, so we'll have a lot of great shows out for you in 2015. Thanks again for listening to The Extra Environmentalist. And remember, there's an extra environmentalist inside of everyone. The difference between degrowth, which a lot of you are affiliated with, and the end of growth, is that degrowth is that we can voluntarily choose to move away from growth. 
And the end of growth is that growth is leaving us anyways and we have to react to it. I subscribe to the end of growth because I, I see it happening and I think the preparations between the two are very different. I think that the, the time to jettison GDP growth as our cultural aspiration was 20 or 30 years ago, now it's leaving us whether we want it or not. And if we switch to something like genuine progress indicator or some hedonic measure of, of GDP or success, the people that own the claims on GDP, they're not gonna wanna be paid back in happiness tickets. They're gonna want like real things. So that, that's an issue, the, you know, the people that have things now. And on the next episode of The Extra Environmentalist in 2015, we will be recapping our coverage and broadcast from the 2014 Slow Money Gathering in Louisville, Kentucky. You'll hear talks from Wendell Berry, Vandana Shiva, Joel Salatin, and more. You can see that right away, as soon as we begin peeling the onion of financial convention, we get into some very fundamental questions of economics and culture, language and intention. I've learned, and your presence here today confirms, that there are many, many people who really are hungry for a new conversation. We are tired of our complicity in a broken system, complicity that is reinforced every second of every day by our money zooming around the planet. Take the phrase, slow money. Put the word slow in front of the word money, and immediately very fundamental questions arise. I walk up to you on the street. You've never seen me before. I tell you to close your eyes because I'm going to put something in your mouth. You tell me no. But that's our food system. It's totally opaque. And every bite we take of the food that we buy comes from people, in most cases, that we don't know. One of the most uh, famous ways to make sure the status quo stays the same is to create a bureaucracy. Only 30% of the food is coming from an agriculture system that is in, engaged in war against the earth. 75% of the biodiversity in agriculture has been driven out by monocultures. <laughs> Get off with advertising, what's the use of compromising? Fa la 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 And cut! All right, Randy, I'm gonna need you to get in there. I need some emotion. This is gonna be the end of the fracking industry as we know it. If you don't raise $700 billion for the industry, the whole industry is going bankrupt. All right, take four, cue music, roll camera, and action. Ugh. Just another day at the office. I always like to put my feet up for a bit and drink some of this gin and tonic by the fireside. I just spent the whole day telling people that their flaming faucets aren't anything to worry about. Whew. Sometimes it's tough being a traveling salesman. 
but any booming industry also has some rough patches. You don't want Eagle Ford in Texas to be a ghost town, do you? Yeah, I didn't think so. Sure, banks needed 700 billion and a bunch of money that went under the table at the Federal Reserve, which we'll never be able to quantify. But I mean, I was just getting all those LNG export terminals and oil export legislation ready for your congressman to sign off on. And if we don't get bailed out, all that stuff will get just auctioned off to some Nigerian prince. And no, not the spam, email, scam kind. They have a really big oil industry there. They can use the pipelines. You don't want that, do you? It's not a bailout, because you'd have to be underwater for that. And we're practically drowning in oil. We're under oil. And how are we gonna get all that stuff out of the ground if you don't help us? I wanna punish those dead dinosaurs so bad. Let them burn. Cut, 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 Randy. How many times do I have to tell you we are not going to burn the dinosaurs? We are not burning dinosaurs. People love the freaking dinosaurs. If you tell them to burn dinosaurs, they're not going to want to do that. They freaking love Barney. I want to kill Jurassic Park. I want to burn them. It's terrible for ratings. It's going to lose the whole point of this commercial. Try it again. Being a traveling salesman is really rough. Instead of just breaking even, we can make it even together. Let's break even better together. Support House Resolution 404, the Shale Act. Some help for America's Leadership and Energy Act. Those flaming faucets are fires of freedom. Cut, can we get a grip in here? The American flag's on fire. Ah, I just wanted to pour some water. Randy, that's our fourth flag you burned. I, it's accidental, I just, I was thirsty. I needed some water. All right, take 23. And roll camera. Action! I just want the dinosaurs to burn! No, Randy, no! Randy, the whole shale industry is going under because of you! If you don't get it together, we're gonna be here all freaking night. Traveling Shale Man commercial, take 42. And action! Just another day. In the-